recordings, traditional jazz, and other analgesics. A public service of Radio Free Ann Arbor. Broadcasting from the University of Michigan, WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. In Technicolor. North by Northeast is back. And nearby in Toronto, Canada. North by Northeast is the festival destination that combines music, film, interactive innovations, and laughter. All within 10 days and 10 nights. June 13th through 22nd. If you want to hear, see, smell it yourself, tickets are available now. Online at nxne.com or stay tuned to WCBN to get information about how you can win free tickets North by Northeast June 13th through 22nd well hello good evening or good afternoon depending on what time you wake up. It's just about as lovely as it could be outside, and so take advantage of that. No rain in sight. Weather's been fabulous lately, and uh, much deserved after the brutal winter that we all endured. So nice to have this uh, very pleasant weather. And uh, we've had enough rain uh, locally to uh, satisfy the needs of growing things. And actually, speaking of growth, that's something that I'm uh, going to talk a little bit about tonight, or at least uh, divergent interpretations of what growth means and how it can be used as a term to either illustrate or obfuscate, as all language, ultimately, is susceptible to that kind of abuse. As I always like to say when I was teaching uh, literature and English, that uh, we're all at uh, the mercy of language, and sometimes it does the thinking for us. When we speak clumsily or use unintended phrases, or at least phrases that have additional meanings, some of which we do not intend or even um, know about so um, growth what does it mean to you well I ended last week's program by the way uh, my name is Jim Dwyer and this is Gray Matters the weekly uh, news current event media analysis program and I'll be taking it up to the 7 o'clock hour Dick Whaley still away on business and uh, the big game will be in New York City tonight so uh, Stanley Cup Finals Game three, uh, Manhattan will have all eyes upon it for other reasons than just the fact that it's Manhattan. Uh, New York Rangers are definitely in a must-win scenario. They win this game tonight, and uh, it's a series. Uh, They do not, and it's pretty much all over, but the crying. Um, I still think that they have uh, a a tenable chance to make it. I think their goaltending is better. Uh, 
Los Angeles is a very opportunistic team, a very resilient team. They always seem to find a way to come back. New York just seems to have a really good speedy burst, and then they they got to keep that up. That's what they need to do. So anyway, I'll sort of put that aside. I uh, had to go off on that tangent, though, since I mentioned uh, New York City. Well, as I was saying before I restarted the program, um, last week I ended the show by reading a short article uh, from uh, Emiko Tarazono in the Financial Times the end of May about how the gold price falls further as the shadow of El Nino lengthens. It's a very interesting uh, article that shows the ways in which the weather affect the crops. Obviously, okay, that's not too difficult to grasp. We all know that. Uh, but that the success of the crops in India is going to affect the gold market because farmers there buy gold regularly, and it's uh, one of the big things that shifts and shapes the gold market. So the uh, amount of gold that uh, farmers in India are going to be able to buy uh, will affect the price of gold, which will affect other aspects of the uh, international economic uh, construction, uh, whatever we want to call this bizarre system that uh, pretty much runs itself in, in many ways. But uh, it's all at the mercy of the weather. And so a good monsoon season is positively correlated with farmers' incomes and gold demand. Well, that sort of strange interconnectivity between the wind and the gold market is something that we're <clears throat> going to have to think about more and more uh, because sort of behind everybody's backs, although not completely in secret because these things play out on the business pages of the... Uh, what remains of the world's newspapers. And so deep within the uh, second section of the Financial Times, you find uh, sometimes very disturbing articles like this one, which is a piece of news analysis by Neil Munsey. And I'm going to read this entire article because this, I think, uh, is, is all stuff that we need to think about and be aware of. It's entitled, Hillshire Bids Set Wall Street Up for Food Fight. Uh, and this appeared in the uh, June 1st edition of the Financial Times. Pickles may go with sandwiches, as Hillshire Brands Chief Executive Sean Connolly put it two weeks ago, but many were puzzled by the U.S. Food Group's announcement that it would pay $6.6 .6 billion to acquire New Jersey-based rival Pinnacle Foods, maker of Vlasic Pickles and Bird's Eye Frozen Food. Without the sort of mooted cost savings necessary to justify the purchase price, many saw the move by Hillshire, known in the U.S. for ballpark hot dogs and Jimmy Dean sausages, as a way to head off a potential takeover. Whatever the motive, the announcement proved meager defense. Two unsolicited bids for Hillshire emerged this week from U.S. poultry producers. Pilgrim's Pride majority owned by Brazil's JBS, the world's largest meatpacker, offered $6.4 billion for Hillshire on Tuesday, and Arkansas-based Tyson offered $6.8 billion just two days later. With investors driving Hillshire's share price above the $50 price of Tyson's offer, expectations are heightened that more bids are in the pipeline. The offers come amid a flurry of activity across the food industry. 
as producers seek to win back pricing power from retailers. And that's a key phrase here for this battle, which is just beginning. I'll repeat that passage. As producers seek to win back pricing power from retailers. Global groups seek growth in new markets and conglomerates reshuffle their brand portfolio. During the financial crisis and in the years since, the food industry focused on growth through cutting costs. I'm going to stop here and interject that this is the first appearance of this term growth. Pay attention to this word in this article here. Uh, we're all familiar with the idea of growth. You plant a seed, it grows, things get bigger, children grow into adults. But what you're, they're talking about here is growth through cutting. Well, <clears throat> the word missing here is growth of profit, not necessarily growth of the industry, growth of a market. So in this particular usage, uh, the uh, food industry focused on growth of profit through cutting costs. Leaner factories, I'm back to the article now, leaner factories, more efficient supply chains, and smaller labor forces. But the Hillshire bidding war suggests the industry has now returned to the hunt for growth. And I'm going to stop again and interject. Here's the word growth, but now it's a different kind of growth because you can only grow profits so much by cutting costs. In fact, after a certain degree of cost cutting, uh, cost cutting, especially in the smaller labor forces, uh, you're often not able to deliver the quantity or quality of product that uh, your faithful consumers have grown accustomed to. And so uh, that's what they call penny wise and pound foolish. Oh, let's save some money by cutting costs. And in the end, long term uh, result is uh, uh, the product suffers and sales decline. So now we're talking about a different kind of growth, the hunt for growth, or really true growth, expansion of markets or of goods and services available. Because there's more money to be made that way. Uh, no brainer. But back to the article. Uh, quote, in the last year, we've really seen a pickup in food mergers and acquisitions at both ends of the value chain. Close quote, says Leanne Sardiga, head of retail and consumer deals at PwC. Uh, deal activity has risen since Warren Buffett and private equity firm 3G Capital's $28 billion acquisition of conglomerate Heinz in February of 2013 and accelerated further this year. According to Dealogic, the data provider, there have been 581 deals worth $85.6 billion in the global food and beverage industry so far this year, compared with 1,340 deals worth $121 billion in all of 2013. The company does not break out food deals uh, specifically. In the past month, Anglo-Dutch Unilever sold its North American pasta sauces division to Japan's Mitscon Group for $2.15 billion, while U.S.-based Mondelez merged its coffee business with Dutch group DE Master Blenders, 1753. 
That follows a year in which Texas-based Cisco bought U.S. foods for $8.2 billion. China's Shanghui International purchased U.S. pork processor Smithfield Foods for $7 billion. And Singapore listed Del Monte Pacific agreed uh, to buy canned, good, canned foods company Del Monte Foods for $1.7 billion. Producers are benefiting from many of the trends that are feeding the broader surge in mergers and acquisition activity, including the modest economic recovery, low interest rates, and a willingness to spend money saved during lean years to offset slow organic growth, says Andy Levine, partner at the law firm Jones Day. But food makers are also consolidating in order to compete in an environment where fewer and fewer retailers control the grocery shelves. Mr. Levine compares the situation to that facing the pharmaceutical industry, another hot mergers and acquisitions market. Quote, their growth strategy is to buy other companies that do stuff they do in order to have the best leverage they can through the sales channel, he said. In such an environment, well-known brands become increasingly important, he says. This has compelled packaged food makers to focus on, or buy, popular brands that can win some of the limited shelf space. For decades, the consumer goods industry has consolidated haphazardly, says Don Wald of Boston Consulting Group. Fortune brands owned both Jim Beam whiskey and Titleist golf balls. Kraft had Miracle Whip and Oreos, along with coffee and tea brands. Sara Lee covered meats, cakes, and instant coffee. During the past few years, these odd pairings have been broken up and stitched together with more suitable partners. Japan's Suntory bought Fortune's spirits business, Beam Incorporated, in January, while Titleist went to Fila. Kraft spun its snacks off as Mondelez, which merged its coffee business with DEMB, which broke away from Sara Lee. Activist shareholders played a part in the breakups of Fortune and Kraft and continue to exert pressure on the food industry, says Mr. Wald. Such agitations helped create an environment in which, quote, you've got a bunch of big businesses looking for earnings growth. Ding! There's that word again. Looking for earnings growth. And you've got a bunch of relatively small businesses out there for the taking, he said. Sarah Lee's meat business became Hillshire, and in all likelihood, it too will soon find itself a new partner. But whatever happens to Hillshire, the appetite for big food deals appears unlikely to be sated anytime soon. Yum, yum. Enjoy your millet seed there. So now that we're coming into this lovely season, this article should reinforce uh, the old and simple idea that as much locally uh, grown and raised food that you can consume, the, the healthier you'll be and the healthier your local economy will be. We have uh, lots of local farmers uh, who can provide uh, lots of good stuff, and there's community gardens. And so uh, take up some gardening yourself. Plant some tomatoes, grow some basil and lettuce. Although, in my neighborhood anyway, there's such a preponderance of rabbits that uh, you've got to take some protective measures. But uh, it's rather bizarre to think about the food industry sort of shuffling and maneuvering and manipulating itself into fewer and fewer hands 
the Kroger chain locally appears to be in uh, some sort of collapse uh, or at least decline. And, of course, the good people of uh, Detroit have uh, difficulty getting access to grocery stores at all. So uh, grocery stores, grocery chains, access to food, healthy food, and, again, especially locally produced food. These are why such things as the community gardens movement in Detroit are particularly interesting and hopeful. Well, on a related note, because, again... The gold prices are related to the wind. Uh, the future of your access to food, uh, or at least the uh, international traffic in same, is all connected to uh, who makes what and who's looking for deals rather than uh, where is food most needed or how can food be best delivered uh, in the most affordable way. These things are connected, and so back to the climate. And this is an article uh, that is back from a couple of years ago. This is from August of 2012. And again, we're catching up to these things. Uh, it took us years to catch up to the uh, Project 2000 climate survey that I often refer to on this program. Uh, we've now, uh, of course, we're in 2014. We've gone way beyond those early projections for what the state of the Earth's natural resources are in our current day and what they might be down the line. Of course, big news uh, last week was that Obama had signed a restriction on the growth of coal burning. Uh, and, of course, that's all well and good. But uh, China's burning uh, lots and lots of coal. So if the U.S. cuts down, well, someone else will burn some coal somewhere else. Uh, this is a piece by Howard Covington and Chris Rapley, both uh, professors of, in uh, mathematics and climate science, respectively, at uh, University College in London. And they write that the risks of climate disaster demand straight talking. And not talking around and not the multiple uses of terms like growth in ambiguous ways, but just straight talking. Here's what they write. These pages, the Financial Times, that is, often focus on how the Eurozone crisis will play out. Yet within a decade, this crisis will resolve itself one way or another. Meanwhile, the more important climate crisis gathers momentum with hardly a word on where it will lead. This is partly because climate change has slipped from the public agenda. But there is also, we suspect, a concern that climate is too contentious and complex a topic for non-expert commentator uh, for a non-expert commentator to tackle. There may also be a fear that any honest appraisal of the possible course of events risks the charge of alarmism. In our view, the first is not the case, and the second is a poor excuse. The carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere is now almost 400 parts per million and is increasing by 2 parts per million each year. Since the rate of emissions is also increasing as the world economy expands viz. China, India, and their increased burnings of fuels. Uh, the carbon dioxide concentration is set to reach 550 parts per million by mid-century, double the pre-industrial concentration. 
Doubling the carbon dioxide concentration will increase the mean near-surface air temperature by about 3 degrees centigrade. This is a crude way to infer the warming effect of emissions without using a climate model. The scientifically accepted range of uncertainty for this increase is 2 to 4.5 degrees. This gives an idea of the risk of coming in higher or lower than the 3 degree estimate would suggest in isolation. Uh, the numbers summarize as succinctly as is possible the mainstream scientific view. A 3 degree rise may sound small, but it compares with a 6 degree difference between the last ice age and the temperature 12 millennia since then. Disputes about the consequences of continued emissions boil down to how long it will take for a given level of warming to be reached and how high the costs of the associated damage will be. Yet given these numbers, it is clear that the risks of driving temperatures up at least 3 degrees are significant. Moreover, political pledges to limit warming to 2 degrees are manifestly hollow in the absence of rapid steps to decarbonize major economies decarbonize. None of this is particularly complicated. All of it is discussed in private among senior scientists, business people, and government advisors. Warming doesn't take place uniformly. In particular, the poles warm more quickly, as is evident from the rapid melting of the Arctic ice. Differential warming changes, geographic temperature gradients, leading to shifts and changing volatility in weather patterns. The 0.8 degrees of current warming has made more likely the weather extremes that hit Russian wheat in 2010 and are hitting U.S. maize now. Again, this is 2012. These events give a glimpse of the future. Weather changes and volatility after warming of 3 degrees could cut staple crop yields significantly. This could happen around the world for years at a time, despite our best efforts at agricultural adaptation. Damages and human displacements from extreme flooding will add to stresses. Public discourse is selective. For years, important subjects discussed privately may be publicly shunned for fear of being shouted down. But in time, formerly radical ideas enter the mainstream. This year's weather extremes in the U.S. may have brought that time closer for climate change. If so, the tacit understanding among responsible commentators that nothing too shocking should be said about climate may end. Climate arithmetic shows that we may be very hungry in a few decades' time, irrespective of the other problems climate change will cause. This could take us way beyond adaptation into the realm of crumbling civil order. The evidence suggests that humanity is locked into a course that it has limited capacity or appetite to alter. Modern economies are built on fossil-fueled growth. Growth. That dubious concept again. Changing this model materially and quickly has proved to be untenable in the absence of a disaster. Business-as-usual emissions growth is the consequence. But that may well produce a disaster that we will be powerless to redress. Those with a more optimistic view of human behavior or of the impact of new technologies and practices may see better prospects of meaningful action to prevent such a disaster. They must be encouraged. Yet, we must also prepare for the challenging times ahead. 
The Science Museum in London plans to create a forum for the public to discuss the issues with leading climate scientists. Such efforts are essential. We must begin to discuss the risks and impacts of a climate disaster, since our institutions and processes appear incapable of preventing it. And that is Howard Covington and Chris Rapley writing in the Financial Times, The Risks of Climate Disaster Demand Straight Talking. Uh, you can only cook, uh, kick that can so far down the road. And uh, we've been kicking it for decades. It's uh, children know about this, and uh, it's their concern. And while our uh, society and uh, political system here likes to talk about helping the children, I'm not optimistic that saying that this is of great concern to the children is going to really ultimately uh, force anybody to do what is the right thing. Well, switching gears uh, rather abruptly to an entirely different subject as we're nearing the end of the program. Uh, just a quick word on, uh, gee, surprise, surprise, more random shootings. Um, this time, though, it's a little interesting in that uh, we've got cops, police officers, as quote-unquote random targets or victims. Obviously, uh, a uniformed officer is a sort of a magnet for a madman with a gun. Uh, but aren't we all? I mean, isn't the random madman with a gun everybody's uh, ultimate fear? Well, uh, I hope my uh, son has a great time off at college. I hope no madman with a gun comes on campus someday or to the school or to the hospital. or Well, we're all vulnerable uh, to the madman with the gun because of his Second Amendment rights, of course. But with these recent attacks, five uh, police officers shot in Moncton, New Brunswick, in Canada. Uh, two or three killed. Uh, two officers shot in a shooting rampage in Las Vegas. In both cases, heavily armed, uh, deranged individuals. Uh, you know, the police response to gun violence has uh, always been on the side of stricter gun laws. In fact, the National Rifle Manufacturers Association, as we should more accurately refer to the NRA as, they are a manufacturer's association, uh, they've always tried to uh, shout down the uh, voice of police authority because, you know, oh, well, the cops represent the government. The government's trying to come take your guns. So uh, the cops are stooges of the government to uh, be in favor of stricter gun laws. But uh, in a related article that I'll have to talk about next week since we're running out of time now, uh, there's a bizarre uh, consequence of two factors in our society. A, the winding down of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and B, the uh, continued random outbursts of uh, deranged individuals with uh, high-powered firearms. Uh, article in today's New York Times about war gear being distributed to local police. It's surplus now, uh, and of course, uh, you never know where the next crazy madman might go off, so... Uh, this is useful technology for police uh, forces, but we should stop and think about the 
what's going on here, that our local law enforcement is becoming essentially militarized. Uh, we are allowing ourselves to be comfortable with that idea because of the n need to protect ourselves uh, where the Constitution can't from guns. So we're sucking right into the NRMA's argument that only guns can protect us from guns. No, that's not the answer, I suspect. But uh, we'll have to continue discussing this uh, next week. Thanks for listening to Gray Matters. My name is Jim Dwyer. I'll be back again next week. I'm uh, not sure. We'll see about uh, Mr. Whaley. Stay tuned for Yazoo City Calling. Uh, Weston's up with that, and it's going to be a very fine program indeed. Listen to this for a moment while you get ready for that. <laughs>